Hello everybody and welcome to the premiere episode of the Urology Docs podcast. The podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of your waterworks and convince you that urology is more than just catheters and plumbing. Over this series, we hope we can provide you with a useful revision tool for those approaching their FRCS urol, and hopefully that will pass some time on those pesky, pesky commutes to those district general hospitals your TPD has almost certainly banished you to. But no matter what stage of your career you're at, or what specialty you're in, we think this podcast will offer a unique insight into why we do what we do in urology, and hopefully we can have a little fun along the way as well. My name is David Bratt, and joining me on this journey are my co-hosts and partners in crime, the first of which is the most annoying man on the planet, Mithun Kalavasan, and sure to be voted the most handsome man in urology, James Ackman. So please pass the pod if you enjoy it around your departments, and let's get right to it for the very first episode of The Urology Docs. All right then, chaps, how are we doing? Hello, hello. Should we be drinking during this podcast? Make it a bit of fun. I mean, we can if you want. Drinking games. Drinks of tea. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm so happy you chose me. <laughs> well, Not many people to choose from. Yeah, it's quite slim pickings, isn't it? Yeah, slim pickings. It's the only people that you knew. We do love all the other trainees. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, we do love you all. It's a special group. Oh, special, yeah. special group. So, Mithin, you're currently in Leicester, and James, you're in Lincoln, and I'm in Kettering. So we're all commuting. United Lincolnshire Hospitals. Great, great, great trust. You know, the TPD and I got along very well. Yeah, you're going to be chucked off this program quicker than quicker than you could say <laughs> so how are you both yeah i'm fine i'm fine growing a mustache it looks pretty good actually for those for those listening we are over zoom at the moment so i can see these guys ugly faces actually no james james is very handsome james and, is always... and, and yes the rumors are true ladies he did give up a career on Love Island <laughs> to become a urologist. Oh, hold on, hold on. Let's just put this right. Okay, I'm going to put this bed. So, okay. you know, go on, tell us the story. I, I applied. Well, first of all, I, I like what well, I sort of you know. I'm a big fan of the TV program. It is a good show. I, I, I think you know the people that go on it are a huge grave, grave, and um, I commend them. You know, it's not easy to be looking emotionally naked and physically on on, on the screens. No, it must be a terrible life to be handsome. So how far did you get? Um, made a few videos for myself. What videos? And, uh, that sounds dodgy. Yeah, videos were made. I certainly know. There's, there's a website for that. Go on. <laughs> spill. <laughs> spill. Spill. Yeah, so, and um, I um, got to a point where we did face-to-face interviews and um, then they invited me to London. Um, but that was at the same time as um, these urology interviews. But um, yeah, I thought, I thought I'd just give it a shot. Um, and then I realised that. So did you have to make a choice between urology or Love Island? I think so. Yeah. You could have been on like a six-figure Instagram contract or something, couldn't you? Yeah. Instead, I thought I'd make my own podcast. You could be promoting. Look how life turned out. Hang on, looking forward to it. Anyway, are you, you going to start us off? Are we, are we... <laughs> no, Sorry, well... the, the other thing I wanted to say, sorry. Um, you, that podcast voice that you have. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> why, do you have a why are you having to go with my voice because first of all on the on the first bloody minute you say that i'm annoying well i i think i think it's in my right to say that you're annoying because you are annoying yeah but why do you have a podcast voice when you become famous no one's going to recognize you you're gonna have to talk in your <laughs> all right I'll, I'll, I'll turn down the podcast voice can you guys hear that yeah, what, what is it baby <laughs> it's my baby crying is your baby crying <laughs> this is where the flow 
Well, that's, that's perfect. You see, that is perfect material for the podcast. So, shall we dedicate a little section to why we're doing this podcast? Yeah, let's, let's get that. And so, we're doing it at trainees. I agree with that. I think trainees would be ideal. Ideally, I think. I think it's more about providing like a useful tool for for revision. Yeah. Um, particularly, you do a gimmick, a little gimmick on that. You say you know, something like, you know, what what we do, why we do what we do, what we do, and why we do it. Pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> so it should be for trainees and ideally, but it would be of interest to other people as well. Yeah, I think whatever your medical background, I think you'd find it interesting. But um, yeah, it's, it's specifically aimed at our urology colleagues. Perfect. Um, but why? Why? What? What's? What's it in it for you? Why well, you decide? What's? what's hey, well, I tell you. I tell you what. I tell you what the interest was. I was we were watching. Hold we were on. Watching this is these. perfect. Why don't we? I'm recording. Just... Why are you interjecting? Oh my god, James. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. There will be teething problems. <laughs> no i'll tell you what i know you weren't at bouse james because you didn't register for it or apply for the study leave however me and mythen were and um i sat watching the webinars and loads of times people were saying that there you know there aren't particularly any good podcasts out there for our specialty did you know that there's only one active urology podcast Is and there's it? several hundred for anesthetics how long did it take you to prepare that answer <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, there's, there's all these webinars now in the COVID era, we sort of moved to these online platforms. Like for our revision, for our mocks, we all basically every night a week just went on Zoom, didn't we? Yeah, that we was stuff through. And I so thought, nice. wouldn't it be, would, it'd be quite a good idea to sort of almost record our conversations. And, you know, if you're on your, your, your commute, which we all pretty much are in the morning, it'd be good to listen to, to something that's actually useful in the car. Um, I mean, useful's a bit far-fetched, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> The Urology Docs. Shall we take a minute to talk about this year's Bouse? Now, what do you think of Bouse? I thought it was really good. What do you think? I thought it was really good. It worked well. All right, good. Well, let's move on then. Do you think it should be like that in the future? I think I think it needs to be a hype. Like <laughs> there needs to be some sort of hybrid, doesn't there? I mean, I think there was a really good talk. Um, I think actually it's probably a tweet. I think it was from Darren Smith who said the social interaction is really really important, but being able to get the kind of information that we were getting out there was, you know, the best it's ever been really. Cause you could, you could attend multiple sessions at once if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when, when you're at Baus, particularly trainees, they go really for the social aspect. So I think from a trainee point of view, we missed that, didn't we? But, that was the only thing that was missing, but I thought, yeah. I thought generally wise, it was quite good, especially on the last day, Kevin Fong. Oh yeah. Prof, Prof Kevin Fong. That oh, was, he did, did, did the talk about the moon landing. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. It was fantastic. Wasn't it? I, th- I think Kevin Fong is a, is a, is a talented and um, marvellous human being. Um, <laughs> he actually, he did a Desert Island disc, if I can remember, actually. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Follow Kevin Fong. He's, a, he's, a, he's an esteemed colleague, isn't he? Um, but yeah, it, he you, is. know what's, you know what's beauty, the beauty behind it? It's because it's someone not in the NHS or a urologist that is he's shedding their light. He's an anaesthetist. No, no, no. Sorry, hold on. No, <laughs> Please keep that in. That has to go. <laughs> no, because for me, right, there were two. There were two things on that final day that stood out. Right, the first thing about uh, the simulation with um, that the astronauts used. Right, because you know, Dave, I do a lot of simulation. Right, I, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Boot Camp over here. But listen, listen, listen. It just because, right. If you don't have simulation, especially in COVID era right now, where all our training opportunities are limited, that is where simulation is going to play a key role in, in the future. 
It has to be. And the second thing to say, because it ties in nicely with the simulation thing, is with the BAUS audit. So what, what I'm, if you look at the National Blood Outflow Obstruction Audit, right, that we all did in November, did you collect some data? Yeah, yeah. You did? Yeah? Did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it so was the, done. It was done. <laughs> no, it was done. You know, outcome has changed, has it? What do you mean? Yeah. You're a key contributor. I mean, con a contribution was made. I didn't say it does need to be who, how that contribution was made, but a contribution was made. You, d you did a TRP? <laughs> Try to. Increase the length of stay. <laughs> okay, oh, but like... listen, listen, listen back, back to the point. Go on, go on. Point. So if you look at, there were a couple of money slides there, but one of the main slides was, guess what proportion of trainees did blah, blah, blah obstruction procedures in November 2019? 50%, yeah, but 50. I, I suspect it's probably more towards 30% than that. 20, where? A quarter. A quarter of all blood outflow obstruction procedures done in November 2019 were done by trainees. Oh my God. I couldn't believe that. That's Do incredible. you reckon it's because they're trying to get through them over the weekend and obviously the weekend is not a training list? Well, no, but from my personal experience, right, most trainers are keen for you to get stuck involved but yeah, i just absolutely. don't know why why these numbers are low because i know there are trps that are going on i know lists are difficult to attend to i do get that but th that just can't be right yeah if we're not getting these numbers then yeah simulation has to play a role you know yeah. one it has to be one or the other because if it's yeah. a recurring theme it's because i think one of the um consultants of birmingham said there was a similar finding in the pcno audit there were you know a lack well not a lack but reduced number of training involvement. So yeah. there's clearly underlying issues. Well, I think it does sound like it's going to be more competency-based. Sure. It, and if that involves, like, the boot camp simulation models, which are incredible, yeah. um, then I think that could play, play a key role towards it. I wonder if a lot of it's going to be virtual as well, whether it, they can incorporate that into it. I, mean, I, I think, you know, there is scope there. But can that be translated in every aspect of your training? So, for example... You know, I can, I can remember doing that simulated version of TURP on using that handset. And I'm just thinking, a capsule on a screen simulated. Yeah. There was nothing like it on the day. Of course so, not. You know, of course not. I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What yeah, I'm trying you can't to say, replace the true patient interaction. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, fine, we're going to a competency-based assessment. But ultimately, competency is, you know, Lots of studies are showing competence related to experience. The more experienced mm. you are, you know, volume, volume outcome relationships, they're all associated, you know, the more volume you do, a high volume center, the less complications do you get, right? Similar for us, for trainees. My question is, is why are we missing out on so much? Yeah, I agree. It's perplexing and it definitely needs addressing. And hopefully we'll know a little bit more about it in the future when uh, they analyze the data a little bit more and put forward their recommendations uh, from the results of this audit. And hopefully we can uh, bring you that information, that news on uh, one of our future podcasts. And on that note, I'm going to get a beer. That's because you want to play your damn song, don't you? Yep. Right, so the next part of the podcast is going to be focused more towards uh, the educational material uh, we think you might need for revision towards the FRCSU role exams. But this may also be of interest to other specialties and also consultant colleagues uh, who are keen on revising some of the key topics. So on today's episode, we're going to spend 10 to 15 minutes talking about one of the key topics um, that affects us pretty much on a daily basis as urologists. And we get a huge amount of referrals about it, don't we? Um, and that's BPH and low urinary tract symptoms. So Mitham, why don't you kick us off and talk a little bit about what we know about BPH from previous studies and why it's a, 
sort of a progressive disease uh, with age? So the evidence for this comes from uh, a longitudinal study by the Olmsted County Group. And basically, this this is an old study, pre-2000. And they looked at approximately 2,000 patients in Minnesota between the ages of 40 and 80 years old. And what they found was that there was a strong age-related increase in the treatment of patients. So almost a tenfold increase in patients requiring treatment from 40 to 49 at to 70 years or older. And approximately, there was a progression of 0.2 points per year. Um, so if you look at the actual table in the study itself, you're 70 you have about a 28% chance of, or 28% prevalence of moderate or severe symptoms. So essentially what we're saying is BPH becomes more common the older you get, but the incidence of eventually patients needing surgery in men seems to be low. So if you look at a broad spectrum of studies, and we'll go into these studies in much further detail later down, but patients who are treated in the placebo groups um, or in the watchful waiting groups of MTOPS, PLES, and Watson, the, the incidence of requiring treatment was between 5 and 24%. Yeah, that's really good, actually. There was, a, there was a study that I think people should be aware of that predated that, though, that was the, the famous autopsy study done in 1984. What was that about? So that was, was, Barry, that? that was Barry et al. So basically, this was an autopsy study, and they looked at 1,000 patients. Um, and the key bit of information that this study produced was the prevalence of BPH. And they concluded that uh, the normal prostate reaches about 20 grams between uh, men aged 21 and 30, and it essentially stays constant um, until BPH develops. Uh, And they quoted that the prevalence of pathological benign prostatic hyperplasia is around 8% at the fourth decade, but it rises to 50% in the male population uh, when they are 51 to 60 years old. So, um, you know, in, in the exam, if you get asked about the prevalence of BPH, the majority of that data comes from uh, Barry's autopsy study done in 1984. Okay, Barry et al. Barry et al. 1984 was the autopsy study, um, just showing essentially benign prosthetic hyperplasia with age. Um, and that leads nicely into to Olmsted County, which was 1996. Okay, guys, so... What I thought would be good to do is have a hypothetical patient in clinic and we could talk through some of the questions he might have for us and how we frame our answers um, around some of the evidence. So the patient asks, am I at risk of going into retention? So Mithun, what might you tell him about that? So there are a number of studies that I think we're going to talk about um, in, in a couple of minutes or so, but the risk of going to retention is about between 2 and 7% per year without treatment. And those are based on a number of studies, Wasson, uh, MTOPS, and PLES. So if I talk to you about PLES, so PLES PLES was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study looking at 3,000 patients with moderate to severe urinary symptoms, uh, with one arm having finasteride 5 milligrams once a day, and the other arm having placebo. And they followed these patients for four years. And looking at the results, 10% of the placebo arm underwent surgery for BPH, whereas 5% of the finasteride arm had surgery. Similarly, acute immune retention was 7% in the placebo arm and 3% in the finasteride group. So it looks like finasteride's almost halves your chance of going to AUR or requiring surgery. And the finasteride also had a significantly higher improvement in symptom score. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? It's just showing basically finasteride alone reduced the rate of retention by, by about 50%. So exactly. So, you know, patient in clinic asks you, yeah, I'm at risk of going into retention. Uh, and we know that 
from Plast that we're treatment the risk is what? What do you say about that? 3%, 3%, 3%, 3%. Um, so, okay, fine. So uh, we've talked about the risk of getting into retention, um, but your patient wonders, you know, is there anything that can help me reduce that risk? Um, and he, he's heard about some tablets. Uh, he's read some tabloid newspapers. And so he asks you, James, are tablets any good? So I'd explain that tablets um, are good in generally, especially if you're using combination. Um, and the evidence behind that is the 2003 paper by McConnell's team, um, the MTOPS trial, Medical Therapy for Prostatic Symptoms, uh, whereby it was a double-blinded, placebo-randomized controlled trial. and looked at about 3,000 patients, and the end goal was looking at um, the overall clinical progression defined by cuneal retention, um, symptom score getting worse, renal failure, UTIs. They followed the patients about four and a half years, and what they did was compared doxazosin finastoide a combination therapy. Uh, they found that in combination therapy reduced risk of progression by about 66%, 34% by finasteride, and 39% by doxazosin. Uh, so also in MTOPS, didn't they say that doxazosin wasn't significant in reducing the rate of retention? On its didn't own, they? yeah. yeah. Um, and they think that bit because if you use the finasteride, it reduces the size. I think they're, they're measured about is it 18% or so. Mm. Um, because it reduces the size, the doxazosin can actually take effect by opening up the blood and neck. So MTOP's big in favour of combination treatment, and that was McConnell's group in 2003, which sort of ties nice, nicely into combat, doesn't it? What was the difference between combat and MTOP's? So combat Lovely was Roborn's group um, in 2009, so it's a lot more sort of recent. main difference here was that it was not finasteride, it was dutasteride. It wasn't doxazosin, it was tamsulosin. So dutasteride versus tamsulosin versus combination. Um, and again, similarly, the, the t- big take-home message was combination treatment significantly reduced the risk of going into retention and also the need for surgery versus tamsulosin on its own. Um, and that was 66% reduction in the rate of retention versus tamsulosin and a 70% reduction in need for surgery with combination treatment versus tamsulosin alone so so most of our data is based on those three studies isn't it for medical management of benign prostate hyperplasia i think the take-home messages from sort of like the the tablet side of things is um alpha blocker good we know that from mtops five alpha reductase good we know that from pless but a combination is better than either on its own and we know that from both MTOPS and, and combat. And that's sort of the stuff that I think um, you'll definitely need to frame your, your answer for in those FRCS stations. So how's all this data then been compiled into the NICE guidelines? So the NICE guidelines say that you should offer an alpha blocker for moderate and severe LUTs. Yeah. And then yeah. you should offer finasteride for patients with a prostate larger than 30 or a PSA greater than 1.4. So those are essentially in that high risk group. Yeah. Okay, so your patient's quite satisfied that he's been counselled on tablet therapy, but he's really interested to know what his risk factors are for his symptoms getting worse or his risk of going into retention. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the, the important risk factors with respect to disease progression for BPH comes from the Olmsted County study that I talked to you earlier about. And in that longitudinal study, they identified uh, four potential groups that were 
uh, at risk. So those with moderate or severe symptoms defined as AUA score greater than 8, Qmax less than 12 mils per second, a prostate volume of greater than 30 cc, and those patients who are older than 70 years old. Um, Mm. And if you look closer at at the PLES study, um, they actually did a rock curve analysis and identified that both PSA and prostate volume were highly predictive of future episodes of retention and the need for BPH-related surgery. So that gives more strength to the evidence for those risk factors. What, what, do, you, what do you guys um, tell patients with regards to diet and race and things like that? What, what, what do you tell patients about that for their risk factors for BPH? I'm personally not aware of any good studies um, or randomized studies that have shown that either race, diet, physical activity are related to the development of BPH. No, I think uh, the etiology of BPH is still relatively poorly understood, isn't it? Um, the most commonly accepted hypothesis is is the one about dihydrotestosterone and having functioning testes at the time of puberty that leads to BPH in, in adult life, which was obviously, we talked about, shown in, in Barry's uh, collection of autopsy studies. Additional risk factors they know about, family history has been linked um, but despite intense research into smoking, obesity, ethnicity, sexual activity, or lack thereof, I still to this day don't think there's been any conclusively linked evidence to, to the development of BBH. Yeah, there's nothing concrete. Hmm. I, think, I, think, I think one of the problems, with, especially with diet, exercise, is conducting a high-quality randomized control trial. Because yeah. most of the time, you're going to have a large bias in terms of you know controlling for those external factors that you won't be able to control for in a study um so yeah that i I suppose further research is required with regards to that the urology docs right okay chaps so the very same patient miraculously goes home but actually next week ends up on the medical ward in retention because the advice you're giving him is rubbish okay um and he ends up unfortunately with a catheter in all right. And the medical SHO is on the line and he says, Mr. Calavasa, Mr. Ackman, I need some help. What do I do with my patient with his catheter in? You get this all too often, don't you? Very common question. I think in the majority of cases, right, we'd all probably have the same advice, which would be start them on an alpha blocker. And I think I'll go to is Tamsulosin. Yeah. Um, and well, well, what's that? What's that evidence based on then? So that's based on a trial by the Alpha group. It is okay. indeed. So, so the Alpha study was a um, study done uh, by a team in Edinburgh that looked at giving a Alpha blocker uh, as a daily dose um, to men in acute urinary retention. It was a double-blind placebo-controlled study, and they used Alfusacin, hence the name Alpha. Basically, the take-home message from this study, um, successful TWOCs were increased in 60% of the cases to the patients given Alpha blockers. Um, and ongoing reduction in retention long-term. Um, so that's why we ask the medical SHOs to put them on alpha blockers, because uh, it makes a massive difference. Okay, so um, there was a second bit of that study, wasn't there? There was the, yeah. the second phase where they follow up these patients for six months after the uh, after giving alpha dose in 10 milligrams, and what they found was uh, the need for surgery was much less than those with alpha blockers compared to those patients on placebo treatment. All right, guys, that was a good discussion, I think. Um, hopefully people well, tried to learn something. Well, what are the take-home message? Take-home messages. One each. Can I say one? 
Yep. Let me let me let me guess this one. Let me let me guess what he's going to say. Well, actually, yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll take one thing from this. I got to say um, is that resume is um, what 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 what? Gosh, resume. Resume therapy is, is, you? <laughs> is, is an effective way of treating bad out for obstruction. Um, we I haven't talked about the evidence for that, have we? Yeah, we <laughs> We've not even discussed that. That's for next <laughs> yeah, time. That's, that's a spoiler. That's a, that's a sneak peek <laughs> for, next, for next week's episode. <laughs> that's, that's coming in the Urology News section next week, listeners. So stay tuned. That'll, that'll bring them back. You've learned nothing over this. You've, you've learned nothing, James. Well, I, okay. Uh, combination therapy yeah. works well for two thirds. You know, two thirds people improve. Combination therapy is the one. I think uh, MTOPS combat—they're the ones to quote. And also, I think what Mithun was saying about the the bowel order, suggesting that only twenty-five percent of trainees are doing these the TRPs. I think that's pretty shocking, and that's a bit of an eye opener for us all. I think. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode, our premiere episode of the Urology Docs podcast. Oh, boring. Listen, man, you've got to have an outro, man. Just come up, come up with it. Come up with something funny. We'll, um, be funny. Go. What do you mean, be funny? Just be funny. <laughs> Go. I'm huh? talk about Ben's table. Go on. Don't rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I do like that. I think we should come back, but anyway. Um, I think we should come back. I think we'll come back next week. We'll talk about more different options that are available to us for BPH surgery. Um, we'll dive into on-call conundrums for the urologist, particularly our favorite topic of catheters, and hopefully uh, get a high-profile guest on as well. So, Jay, so- you weren't recording. <laughs> we are recording. Oh, you are the worst. This is I what know. I have to deal with. Uh, I think it's been a pleasure, actually. Been fun. It's been fun Good chat. talking to you guys again. Should have a beer next time. Yeah, I think we should do it with a beer. See you, my friends. Ben. The See end. Goodbye. We do why we do what we do, what we do and why we do it.